We live in a time where masculinity is shamed and men don't know what it means to be a man. As a pastor and counselor, I've spent the better part of my life equipping and training others. My goal with this show is to translate my hard-earned experience into tools and tactics to help you become stronger as a man. This is the Brave Co. Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Valentin. Welcome back, Brave Co. Men, to the Brave Co. Podcast. This week, I have an incredible man on. His name is Gene McConnell. Uh, he has one of the craziest stories that I've heard, and um, I did a a event with him this this last year um, for, gosh, who was that for? It was for um, Exodus uh, Cry, Benji Nola. Yeah, yeah, Exodus Cry. That's right. And uh, man, which is so powerful. When Gene shared his story, I, right away, I thought I got to get him on the Brave Co podcast. But Gene's an incredible man. Uh, he has an, an organization called Authentic Manhood um, Initiative. Uh, let's see, Authentic Relationships. Uh, international. Sorry. That's okay. And um, yeah, and just, uh, yeah, just so much um, resources and, and wisdom coming out of him. But uh, Gene, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited uh, for, for everyone to to hear your story and, and, and your wisdom. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jason. It's an honor to be a part of uh, helping you have impact for the men you're reaching and working with. Yeah, thanks. Gene, um, I want to dive in just right away. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna go deep into Gene's story, which is a story of of brokenness and sexual addiction, and and um, you've just become an expert on the subject, traveling around, speaking all over, and helping hundreds, if not thousands, of of men and women uh, break free. But before we dive into you know how to get free in, in the you know all that stuff, let's go back into your story. How did you grow up? Um, how did you get introduced into uh, pornography and, and sexual addiction? Well, um, I'm a preacher's kid, so I was born going to church. Um, so every time the doors were open, I was there. So uh, that meant, meant at least four or five times a week I was in church settings. Yeah. And so very young in life, um, I, I you know accepted Christ at nine. Um, I knew that God had put a, heart, a call on my heart, but you know, in a, my, pa- my my parents were pastors, my grandparents were pastors, my great grandparents were pastors, my uncle and aunt are pastors. So I grew up in not only church but church leadership. So there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes in terms of tools, understanding what it costs, uh, all of that. And uh, I knew very young that I wanted to have impact. Um, so my walk with the Lord, you know, I memorized scripture young, um, very young. Um, and I would play the, play those little guitars with the plastic strings, you know, when I was looking, you know, sing on the corner. I did a whole lot of that young in young life. But at the age of six, um, was a significant, uh, thing that happened to me. I was sexually abused by a babysitter and the babysitter was about six or seven years older than me. And, um, I, my dad was a, because my dad was a pastor, he was a very busy guy and he, um, didn't have the, the time that, um, 
that I longed for. I was a very hungry kid. I really loved my dad, honored, respected my dad, and wanted to get to know my dad even more. And yet the people that were in church were getting more attention. It just required a lot because he was a roofing contractor during the day and a, and a pastor at night and weekends. So I was hungry, hungry for attention and affirmation. Here's this babysitter who said, uh, you know, I like you. You're important. Um, I care about you. You're handsome. All those kind of kind words. And with that came sex. And I didn't know at the time what the heck was going on. All I knew was that the attention felt good. Mm-hmm. So what my first sexual experience at the age of six was pleasure and shame in the same experience. So I pleasure, pleasure in a sense of I felt like I was wanted. I felt like I was needed. I felt like I was important to someone slash. I felt dirty. I felt soiled. I felt damaged. I felt like I was broken. And I couldn't put language to it at six. There's no way to even understand what the heck just happened. And it, and that happened for a long period of time. I don't have the years of time. It just happened a lot. All the memories blur together. And then it, you know, going through church, keep in mind, I, I said at the beginning that I'm at church a lot. So I'm at church. I'm, I'm running at the altar at six years old, crying out God. And I'm thinking, I am that dirty little boy. And because what was a hook in that, and this is really important to make point just to start us out as my story goes, yeah. is, is that the, the, because my body responded to something so shameful and so dirty, that somehow I thought, I am that, I am dirty, I am broken, because anybody that's healthy wouldn't respond to something so wrong. And so because my body responded and because I didn't tell anybody and because I kept it secret that I thought I was the contributor. I was the one that was doing this. And so I believed very early that I was too broken, too dirty to be loved. It's a core thing that happened at the age of six. And so I would run down to the altar at six, seven, eight years old, crying out for God to cleanse me, heal me, free me, but never could get the picture of how to, how to get that dirty stain off of my world um off of so at at the age of nine there was a a young man that was brought into our home he was going his parents were going through a really tough time so my parents brought him in and uh you know he, he moved into our house for a while and he began to molest me as well and so now i so i these the struggle with this is, is that what do I got this neon sign on my forehead says, here I am, molest me. Yeah. And, uh, the truth was, is I was just hungry for attention. This guy represent, he was five, six years older than I was. And he was like a dad to me, you know, I mean, he helped me beat up my bullies. We rode bikes together, we skateboarded together, played ball together. And so the, the reality was, is that I was longing for connection for male connection but this guy took that vulnerability and used it for his own purposes. Now I understand that, but then I did not. And I thought, well, you know, and the struggle with it again is why didn't I tell somebody, why am I hiding this? Why am I allowing it to happen again? Yeah. Why am I involved in it? And um, why is there pleasure connected to something so wrong? And so I was twisted and turned inside, both emotionally and actually mentally. And at the age of 12, my first exposure to pornography was at a 
Elder's house, who was a relative, but he was a leader, church leader, worship leader, counselor. Um, and I was playing army at his house and I snuck into the shed to hide. And there was this two to 300 pornography magazines. And my, to this day, I, I did that very first image of it opening that up and the impact that that had on me both. And it felt exactly the same as that first sexual experience where there's pleasure. Wow. Look at this. Oh my gosh. Wow. Beautiful. All that kind of stuff slash feeling dirty, soiled, you ugly. I know this is wrong. I felt like I, there's a, you could use the word perversion. Although what I didn't have that language, but it would have felt like. And so the idea then is this, I knew there was shame introduced because I wouldn't tell anybody. Shame, you know, the fruit of yeah. shame is hiding. So I couldn't tell anybody. And so I kept it secret. And that started this whole journey of going to pornography, learning from the imagery, learning, start reading the stories, consuming everything I could get my hands on. Now, keep in mind, slash being in church four or five times a week, hearing God speak to Did my you- heart. But did you like steal, did you steal those guys' magazines or? What I did was, is that, you know, we have several ways it came. So I would go into a grocery store and I would, you know, back in the day, they had it behind an adult section or an adult part. And so you couldn't get to it, but I would find a way to steal it or, or I would uh, find one of my friend's parents' dad was consuming and they'd have a man, I'd steal a magazine or I'd take a couple pictures out of it. Um, and then what we call the, the, the spillover effect, which is I'd find it in a trash can or I'd find it in a, in a, in a you know, in a alleyway or, yeah. a, you know, a ditch. So it wasn't, photography wasn't available back in the wagon days. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. Uh, back man. in the, you know, the sixties, what pornography was not available like it is today online and, and, uh, true. phone. So it was something you had to pursue or seek out. Um, so. I knew something was wrong when I start when I was consuming because of what it did to that that my young heart of wanting to be like God, wanted to pursue God and wanted to have impact there. But then I saw my heart start to turn and my thinking turn. So I started having fantasies and and uh thoughts that I would never have allowed before. And the thinking was beginning to shift because I would see these images, whether women, you know, things that I won't even get into that were twisted, wrong, unhealthy, demeaning, objectifying, obviously. So all of that is is beginning to affect how I see women and also how I see sex, how I uh, encounter women. You know, there's a study, there's several studies out there showing that that early exposure to pornography has the same impact as sexual abuse. So why? Because it, it wounds the ability to see in a healthy light, women, relationships, sex. So wow. I might not physically have harm by viewing, but it damages how I see and how I treat and how I treat myself. And so the, the, so thinking about it, my first experience to relationship with a woman was sexual abuse. And then pornography was like fuel on the fire. Pornography was my education. So from about 12 to 16, I became an avid consumer of porn. And, um, and I, I, 
I'd get every whoever where I could get my hands on it, I would. And uh, but then at the same time, knowing that um, I would cry, run down to the altar. God, I don't want this in my life. This is wrong. I know it's wrong. I'll never do it again. And it, you know, it might be a week, two weeks, sometimes six months. But I would ultimately be back in that same hole that I said I would never go. And the the, the amount of shame, embarrassment, pain. Um, that of knowing you're doing something that goes against the very heart that you have inside and to know that if anybody saw what I was doing, they would, they would see me as disgusting. They would throw me out because everybody saw me as a, a kid that was alive to for God. I, I memorized scripture. I was speaking in, in different settings at the age of nine, 10, um, 12. I mean, uh, so the, for me to think that those people would see me any different than the, what they were seeing me there just scared the heck out of me. And so yeah. I did a really good job of lying and pretending and stuffing and, and never letting anybody connect the two of what I was doing and how I lived my life behind the scenes. So I learned at a very early age how to live two different lives, one in front of church uh, raise my hands, say the right words, do the right things, make sacrifices, be the good guy. But behind the scenes, totally different. Fantasies, masturbation, consuming, treating my dates like a, like a piece of meat. Like I just, all I'm looking for is to get to, to home base, you know, kind of thing, which was so demeaning and think about it back. I can't believe that I carried that kind of thinking. Um, so it's 16. I had a profound experience where uh, I won't, well, I just, I will, I just, we just need to do it. Um, So they, I was coming home. I was a wrestler in high school and I didn't have a car early, the earlier parts of the high school. And so I was hitchhiking home and I got a ride to about a mile away from my house. And so the last mile I was walking and as I was walking this a car drove by, and as it drove by, it threw this book out the window into the ditch. And it was about, I don't know, a couple hundred yards in front of me. And so I walked over to where it was, and I opened up that book. And it, and it was, I don't remember the title name, but it was something like Playing with Little Sis. And what it did was it was teaching ideas and scenarios of how sister relationship helps you learn about sex and that, you know, what you like and what you don't like and set up how to set up encounters and when I saw so at 16, now my sister, who was two years younger than me, was 14, and we tri- we did everything together. We rode horses together. Well, I dated her girlfriend. She dated my boyfriends. We, we were best friends. And so for me to cross that line, um, even to this day, that still breaks my heart. Because it just what it violated everything that I knew was right inside of my own soul, yeah. and even there's no way to discount it. It was wrong no matter what, but there was no actual sex. But it was enough to violate the boundaries of what a brother sister relationship was going to be and should be. And so what I I just went down to the altar and I said, God, I mean this with everything in me. I'm going to turn this around and I'm going to demonstrate it. So I went to Bible college. That was right at that time. So I, I graduated out of high school, and then I went to Bible college. And in Bible college, I met a woman, got married, 
there in Bible college, man, for, for six years from 16 to 21, photo clink, didn't touch porn, didn't do nothing. I thought I had beaten this thing. I was totally in. I went, I went to Bible college and then I went into a, a pastor's, um, they were to pioneer churches. So I was literally in this program to go and start a work. And, um, so I was like six months from starting a work when, Things kind of broke in a way that I never anticipated. Uh, my wife was six months pregnant. And when I, uh, she woke up one night in the middle of the night, just screaming and crying and shaking and sweating in fetal wall position. And I tried to hug her and she pushed me away. I tried to cuddle and she just wouldn't let me touch her, wouldn't let me get close to her. So the next day I come up from behind her to give her a hug and she just, she stiffened up and I gave her a kiss and she wiped it off and, and boy, you know, you know, the thing was, is I'm going, man, without talking to her, because she wouldn't talk to me. I didn't know what was going on inside of her. But inside, you know, where I went with that. I said, man, she must see that dirty little boy. She must see something. Somehow I let her into that. Somehow she sees that broken guy. And I freaked out. And she, when I found out later, that she, her early childhood memories of sexual abuse, the baby was triggering those and her, the, the baby was moving at six wow. months. So she had, she had, she was reliving memories, but I didn't know that. I thought it was me. And so there's no excuse, absolutely none. So I literally, I totally, I said, fine. If you're not going to meet my needs and you're not going to let me in, I'm doing this myself. And so I stepped back into the world of pornography. But now I'm of age. So now it's not just a magazine anymore. I can go to a strip club. I can go to a massage parlor. I can go to a prostitute. I can, I can go where I can actually put money towards something live. And live was like a pornography on steroids. And so it, I mean, so it took me right back into the cycle. Now keep in mind when I started back into that, that I now I'm assisting in pastoring someone. I'm assistant pastor. I'm a men's pastor. And so I'm in front of people and I'm speaking I'm talking I'm interacting and people are coming to me for counsel. And they had no idea that the life I was living behind closed doors was the life I was living or that, that, that they anticipated that my life was different in front of them as I was from, as I was in front of them. And the pain of talking to someone with that fear sitting right behind that conversation going, if they only knew, if they knew that I was going to clubs, if they knew that I was paying for prostitutes, if I, they knew that I was living this dual life, how would they see it? And the shame of that, I mean, I would run to, I mean, literally run to the altar and very few times, but I did, I'd go to a brother and I'd say, you know, I'm struggling with lust. Nobody asked me what that meant. They did. I don't think anybody wanted to have that rope, have that conversation because yeah. if they have that conversation, they're going to get confronted themselves. Right. So nobody's yeah. going to have that conversation. And I wasn't about to tell them what that meant. I wasn't going to give any descriptors to that. I just simply said lust. And, um, and so this thing progressed in me like crazy. And for, from the year from 21 to 29, I, I frequented clubs. Uh, on a regular basis and I was making a lot of money. So I spent a lot of money and I, so in the clubs to, to realize just how bad this was for me, 
is is that you know uh i my thinking was that whatever i wanted i could have it just meant how much money i spent and so if i wanted something that the average person or my wife wouldn't consider then i just got to up the ante financially and so when i think about that it is that my she is someone i can purchase she's a commodity she's someone that if my the more money i pay the better i get and the idea is that i know this sounds really crazy and it breaks my heart to even come out of my own mouth at this point but the reality is is i didn't see her anything more than just a piece of meat a commodity somebody that i wanted to i could use and i could throw away i can walk away with no regrets after all i paid money and yeah. so to realize that i'd gone that far with that thinking and how depraved and deprived that was it was crazy so as addictions progress and they always do you never stay the same um and uh so the addiction progressed and or digressed whatever you want whatever language you want to use yeah but it but it got to a point where for many many years i gravitated towards rape fantasy and um and so um, i'd watch hollywood movies i and Back my earlier years of exposure, some of my first exposures to porn were women being, now I'm going to get into it, just the rape fantasy stuff. And uh, so the the pain of that at the first really drove me crazy because, Lord, I can't believe I'm doing this. But at, at the time, at 29, I, I am pretty much fully involved in church and fully engaged in the fantasies dreaming that somehow maybe someday there will be an opportunity to fulfill that in the right spot right place maybe money whatever it takes and uh so one night i i pulled into a racquetball club in the back parking lot it was full and as i was getting out of the car to go play this woman walks by and this something inside goes there there she is this is something snapped inside and said, this is your opportunity. She fits everything you've been fantasizing about. You're in the back of this parking lot. There is nobody back here. Here's your opportunity. And I walked to her car, followed her. And she sat down in her car. I, I said, excuse me. And where's what? Do you know where Walmart is? Kind of start the ball rolling. And uh, so she answered me. And then I forced my way in that car with my hand, put my hands around her throat with a full intent to write. And she asked me, what was I going to do? And I told her what I, I told her that I, that what I was going to do and the fear in her eyes, Jason, um, pure fear. And it was like somebody just slapped me across the face and said, wake up. You're about to destroy another human being's life. Don't you get it? She doesn't want this. She is scared spitless. And it's like it woke me up. And I said, uh, excuse me, I've made a serious mistake here. I let her go, walked to my own car, got in my car, and she got my license plates. I wasn't even thinking from there. I was in this just like this dilemma in the heart. I was just stirring inside, like, what the, excuse me, but what the hell did I just do? Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I got in my car, she got my license plates and turned me in. Well, that started. 
the whole process of getting caught, exposed, and everything that happened from there. Look, I get the fact that uh, what I did was wrong and deserves to be punished. There's no question in my mind and needed that. There's no question. But the way the church handled me was they threw me out, no restoration process. Um, like the 12 elders, what I call the 12, the hall of shame. Uh, they just literally destroyed me. And uh, wow. so they said, you can't come back. You, we don't, you can't come here. And you can't call anybody. So in one moment, literally everybody calling me, seeking for for counsel or to spend time with me. And just a snap of a finger, it's the opposite. Total isolation. No one to talk to. Wow. And uh, so I walked away from that elders meeting and I said, I'll never walk back into a church ever again. I'm done. Now, obviously, it's not their fault. They were hurt. They were they reacted wrong, obviously, but uh, it just gave me an excuse, quite frankly, to just live even worse. For for the next year, I was just, uh, I don't even know how I lived. Uh, I can't, if I went into the scenarios, you just go, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're still alive. So that it was so, so bad. And now uh, one day out of the, out of the blue, um, a guy who had been kind of my accountability guy over the years who I'd lied to every time, basically, about my life. But he was somebody who really cared about me. And he lived about three hours away. He was a pastor of a church in in Tustin area, California. And uh, he said, hey, I haven't seen you in a long time. Uh, why don't you come down and see me? It was a three-hour drive. I lived in Lancaster, California, and he lived in Tustin. So I said, no, I'm not coming. I'm thinking, man, he's the last person in the world I want to know because he's my only friend left. I really don't have anybody else in my life. And he just wouldn't take no for an answer. So I finally agreed. And so I'm driving the three hours thinking I'm going to talk about the weather. I'll talk about the Dodgers. I'm trying to think of a list of things so to keep the conversation going without it ever going because he had no idea what had happened. He had, he was too far away. And, so all he knew is we hadn't talked in a year. So anyhow, I get down in his office and I sit down and um, we're interacting maybe three or four minutes. I'm not sure about the time. And I just went, I just literally vomited all that out. I literally, I, we were probably there two to three hours minimum because I didn't hold back. I just literally let it go. And when I did that, Jason, um, I finally got it all out. And he's sitting behind his desk. And he's between me and the doorway. There's no way out of this office except for through him. And now he stands up and he's coming towards me. And I, I don't know what he's going to do. I really don't. I actually am thinking that he's going to do like everybody else has, right? And so I stand up with my fist clenched beside me, and I'm and I'm I'm ready to deck him if he if he does anything that is painful. And it, what he did just blew me away. He just put his arms around me in a wrestler's hug, and he just pulled me in. And he's not, you know, it's not one of those little like limp hugs. He pulled me in like he was wrestling me and he had me as tight as I can even imagine. And he laid his head on my shoulder and he began to weep. Wow. Now, I've been in church all my life, 29 years to that point. I never tasted what the heck he was doing to me right at the moment. I didn't know what what he did. He brought, it's like he breathed life into my soul. 
And uh, he said, I'm so sorry that you've tasted so much pain and you have not tasted God's love for you. I'm here to walk this out. We're going to get out of this. You're his son and you, we're going to get out of this. I'm going to be here to walk it out with you. And, you know, it's, it's, he had a large church, so he wasn't an easy guy to get to. So for him to say, I'm, I'm once a week, come down for two hours and hang with me. He yeah. was, it was just an amazing, incredible um, thing. But it, what, it, what he did for me, what I realized today, actually is why I'm even sitting here today, Jason. He wasn't the, the magical healer or he wasn't the wise counselor. He just knew how to love. And he, he put life into me. He actually said to me, and this is, this is in his, in the language that we've talked and unpacked later from this event. I talked with him. He said, I see who you are. You're his son. You're God's son. That stuff you're doing is all, yeah, I see that and it's wrong and I'm not denying it and I'm not pushing it aside. But I want you to know that you have value still sitting there and that God wants to embrace and forgive and redeem. And uh, what you're doing ain't you. And uh, everybody else in the world was saying, you know, you're a pervert, you're a scumbag, you're a, you're a perpetrator. Once once an addict, always an addict. You're you're just going to live in suspicion for the rest of your life, and you're you're only one step away from failing. That all kind of crap that keeps you locked in to the mess, yeah. because we think that that's our identity. And uh, boy, what he gave me just changed my world. It did. There is no way. I had a lot of work to do. <laughs> Let me tell you, there's no quick fixes here. But what he did was he gave me the life to fight. Is what he did. Yeah. Right. Wow. What a crazy story. Just real quick, Gene. Like, how did you get out? How did you get all the way out? You know, it. I would. Jason, it's a journey, and, and the the journey is understanding that your your behaviors are just fruits. They're just they're just they're not yeah. the real they're not the real deal. Your behaviors is your way of trying to manage the real problem. So your behaviors are right. just a you're just a symptom, and so finding people who helped me. First of all, I went to someone who dealt with sexual trauma, because so, I had no idea how sexual trauma played a role in my uh, in my consumption of porn, and wow, that was you know, sex on steroids for me, but it, so there was sexual abuse. So I went to Jan Frank who, who wrote the book Adore Hope and she played a profound mm-hmm. in, uh, impact on my life for us. Went to her conferences, read her books, did some counseling. And then I went to a guy who was a sex addict, a specialist, sexual, uh, they called it sexual dysfunction disorders as well as ad- addiction. He's in California as well. And his name was Ray Jones. And I spent almost three years, almost four years actually, with him going, working on the thinking aspect. And then I did a Gordon Dalby for the male wound for healing the masculine soul because there was a lot of wounding I carried. So what I'm getting to is, is there's not just one thing that you, that, that drives this, but it's all underneath the surface. Every bit of it is. So discovering what it is that drives that behavior. So you look at the root systems. And uh, so healing and change begin to happen over a season of time. And having a safe community where I could go and say, hey, you know, you know, if I'm Jason, I'm, I'm falling, I'm struggling with this. Help me out. Give me some support. What can I do? And so getting the, the support 
to uh, be able to go. And, and the key in this whole thing, and if I was to say there's one key, Jason, yeah, and there's a ton of other ones that come on top of it, but this one absolutely is is core. It is, is that I want to be a person of the light. I want to walk in the light, not confessional, where I come to you and I confess my sins and then I go and live something else and then come back and confess my sins. That that if I'm going to walk with the God of light as he is in the light, then I have fellowship. So God's fellowship, connection, relationship in the light is what changes this because it gives me the energy. It gives me the energy. It doesn't change the dynamics in the sense that I still have struggles, but it gives me the energy to fight those struggles. It gives me the energy to grow and change it. So I need the energy, but I can't ever have the energy as long as I'm in shame saying, if I share this, it will be the end of me. If I share this, it will kill me. So I can't really taste acceptance or love or forgiveness or kindness or healing when I'm in the, in the, in the darkness. So the enemy is the prince of darkness and he operates in darkness. So he comes to rob, steal and destroy. If I want to heal, I've got to be someone who says no more hiding. You can't heal what you hide. Yeah. And so yeah, to, that's so true. That's why we need each other, Jason. That's why we need community because I need other men in my life to walk alongside of me, not just to hear my debris and my messes, but to celebrate life, to do life together. And in the doing life together, you know, it isn't just about small group. It's about doing life together. Small group facilitates relationships. It teaches me how to have honest and open relationship, but I need relationship to taste God, to taste God's arms, to taste God's forgiveness, to, to see myself through the lens of another person so I can actually see my value, my true value. Um, so I need, I need community. So it's community for life. Jim, what do you say to the guy who's, um, well, well, maybe I should ask this question. How does a guy know that he's actually struggling with a sexual addiction? And then where's the first place to start? Like, cause there'll be a whole bunch of guys listening to this. And, and some guys, you know, are like, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction or not. Like, can you just unpack that a little bit? Sure. So one of the number one indicators is, is that when you have said no to something, you're not going to do it. And then you go back to it. That's an indicator that there's something beyond your control. You're doing, that's what addiction really is, is you're saying, I don't want to do that, but here I am again. This violates my, my, my whole dignity. It violates who I am as a man, but here I am again. And and the idea, and there's this cycle of, man, God, I mean it with all my heart this time. I'm doubling down. I'm going to read your word. I'm going to get in fellowship. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then it's two weeks later, I'm back in the same hellhole again. So the reality is, is that addiction it can wait six months. <laughs> you know what I mean? I can white knuckle it for six yeah. months. You know? But the reality of it is, is addiction is far um, has much, has, there's a, let me back up. There's a reason why addiction exists in us because it's a way we're trying to meet needs that we're not meeting in a real way or in a healthy way. So there's two primary drivers to addiction. One is unmet needs. So I, I don't know how to meet real needs and I'm going to sex as a way to cope. So I'm using sex as a way to meet that need. And secondly is, is I'm, I'm covering unresolved wounds things that I got, I've been hurt in the past. I'm carrying them. I've stuffed them. They're still hitting me. They still hurt. 
And so I'm using the drug, pornography, mood altering when you consume. So the mood, I, I, I see pornography as a way to take me out of the pain in the moment. But as it takes me out of the pain, the pain still sits there when it's done. And it only works because I just violated my boundaries again about never going there. So addiction is, is, a, is something that you, you have to be honest about. Do I really have control? Can I really walk away from this? Second part of that is, is I don't care if it's an addiction or not. Just the fact that we are even casually consuming. And I mean casually, it could be that you're on Facebook and you see these images come across or you're on Instagram and somehow you get these things that pop up or you get a, a spam email or you and you're coming across imagery that's designed to move us. And what are you doing with that image? You just stop it because it's it, it the key in that whole piece is it have we live in a culture that is toxic. We need each other, brothers to be able to talk about what we're seeing and the impact that it's having on my thinking and not be afraid of how they're going to handle me. So it's a no shame, no shame zone for in relationships so that people don't beat you up. They come alongside of you and support you and, and help you heal. So number one step would be to find, there are two parts to that find a, either find a counselor. The scripture calls it an elder. That is somebody who has a workable knowledge of the things you're struggling with. So take a step to find somebody who's been there, done this, and has a way and understand what it takes to get out so that there's somebody not in the ditch with you. You need you need that. Yeah. You need somebody that's not in the ditch with you. So go into a group where there's a bunch of guys in the same struggle. That's important. It's camaraderie. But you're all in the same ditch. You need somebody who can take you out of the ditch, who can help you come out of the ditch, who gives you hope and says it's doable. So you need that elder, counselor, somebody who knows how to help you get there. And so I'd say counselor, small group where you're having the environment of seeing you're not alone. And then grow, be pursue God in your spiritual walk and I'll pursue your healthy, pursue healthy relationships, which we can spend a um hour gone is is that yeah. we are we need healthy relationships um if you don't mind i'll take a quick side thing here jason just to say yeah, that yeah. that when i would you if you think about what i was looking for at six was someone to show me attention and affirmation not sex so the idea that my need was affirmation my need was yeah. to someone show that i they cared that i was valued that i was important that I was significant and to be to be loved and to be accepted those are the needs but my needs got sexualized so i started pursuing sex to meet those needs and sex doesn't meet any sex doesn't meet any of those needs and so i'm i'm short circuiting my my needs by trying to, by numbing them out rather than meeting them so being able to separate out the sex part so that you can actually learn what are your needs and what are healthy strategies to meet those needs? And the number one That's need, great. number one, number one need, no matter who you are, male, female, doesn't matter, is relationship. And so I'm going to use the word intimacy. Into me, see. To see deep into my soul, to see me fully, and to love me in, in the midst of that. To accept me, to be known and to be loved. That's our number one need. And nothing That's replaces awesome. it. Yeah, Brene Brown um, 
she did this TED talk on vulnerability and um, she gives like four steps to building real connection. And her first step is courage. And her definition for courage is courage is the ability to tell your story with your whole heart, being willing to bear your imperfections. And it's such a powerful, gosh, it was one of the most powerful definitions I've ever heard in reference to building relationship, because if you can't share your story with your whole heart and bear your imperfections, then you can't actually be in a real deep relationship. Right. And so, so many of us are stuck living unfulfilled with our needs not being met simply because you still think you're still, you still have shame about your story. Yeah. You still have shame about your past. And more importantly, that shame is, is deciding for you how vulnerable, how honest, how authentic yep. you're, you're living in your relationships. And therefore you're the poser, right? Like you're only showing and sharing pieces of your life that are pretty, pretty enough to share. And you're never allowing anyone into your pain. And man, um, it's one of the most, it is, it's, it takes, I mean, why she says courage, right? Is this, the step is because it takes so much courage. It does. Like guys don't, I think guys do understand, but it takes so much courage to begin to reconcile the things that you've done wrong. Yes. The things that you're ashamed of to, to confront them and then to be able to unfold those for the world to see, you know, the, the important world, the, your world. Sure. And, but that is to me, like that's, that's the first step to really breaking the chain in your life is I'm, I'm now willing to face what I've done first with God, right? Like I'm willing to, to go to God, but a lot of people stay there. And I, I do, I think this is a trap for men is mm-hmm. they go to God because he already knows and they share everything because he'll never leave us or forsake us. But then they never do that with people. Right. And the truth is, is that God isn't all you need. Like Adam yeah. and Eve are walking in the garden and, or Adam's walking in the garden with God and God goes, mm, this isn't enough. You need a helpmate. You need a soulmate. You need a partner. You need companionship. And so, again, like I think a lot of guys resort back to, I need to read the Bible more. I need to pray more. I need to talk to God more. And those things you can't discount for sure. But if you don't actually come in and bear your soul before the people that are most important to you, then you're still in a prison. You're not out of the yep. prison. You're still locked up into a prison. And I just want to make that really clear because that's a missing link for a lot of guys. That's yep. that's a missing step is they're doing honesty and vulnerability with God, but they're not doing it with their friends. And therefore, we still have shame ruling and running our life. And shame always leads us back to the cycle again. Yep, yep. Right? it sure does. Wouldn't you agree with that, Gene? I totally agree. I totally agree. And Jason, you, you, you said, said it very well. You articulated it well. Uh, and that the, the, the level that I'm open is the level that I experience God. And so, cause if I'm going to be in a relationship with God, 
then I got to be in the light because he is light. And so I'm the one determining how close I get to God because I'm afraid of the light. I'm afraid of what it will reveal. But then it's the next step is you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then you love your neighbor as yourself and hear that are yourself. So you really can't love others until you actually address your own shame, your own, you know, how bad I am. Because when you see, you can't break that without getting that out in the open because you actually get to test that with other brothers when you say, okay, here's my story. And how are you going to really know and experience grace unless you experience it through the hands and feet that are supposed to give his grace? So I can't taste, I can't taste real relationship the way God designed it until I'm in the light because then I can actually taste the grace that I need. I can actually taste the acceptance I need. So redemption happens, gets played out in how I walk that out with you, not just with God. Yeah. It, it's, it's, yeah, not, it's not, it's not, it's, it's not an either or it's both. And, uh, yeah. So it's a beautiful thing what you're saying, Jason. Uh, but I think, you know, the fear is, and it comes back to how shame plays in our lives. As, as long as shame is sitting there and how do I know shame sitting there? Shame is sitting there because, uh, when I, when I, when I look at shame, I'm, I'm seeing that I hide, or I'm ducking and diving, or there's parts of me that's unacceptable. There's parts of me that I just can't discuss because the cross, and we don't realize we're saying this, we're almost saying it's bigger than the cross. We're saying this is too much. And the reality is that there's nothing larger, nothing greater than the cross. The cross came to redeem all, not some, not part, but all. And so I'm the one that determines how it gets done. The courage, like you have said, to step forward and say, okay, here it is. Good, bad, and ugly. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and you do that not only with God, but with others. Yeah, it's so good. You know, I think so many guys try to use willpower um, to and, and even discipline to stay free and to yeah. get out of pornography and other substances yeah. uh, as well, addictions as well. Um, but the truth is all that stuff, all that stuff, uh, you know, is, is fruitless because eventually, you know, it builds up so much that you can't be disciplined enough and you, and you can't use enough willpower and your discipline and your willpower fail you. You know, that's why you, you can gut it out for six months or you can gut it out for eight months or three months and you think you're good, you know, but then you fall back and that relapse is happening because you don't have an ecosystem that's built up to to meet your needs and you have you don't fully understand what's driving exactly the, what's driving the addiction and so it's so helpful you know for a guy to put, check his ego at the door to humble himself and and to start off by going man I don't know what I'm doing I, I always encourage guys like if you're if you're struggling with uh, an addiction don't try to solve it on your own if you could have solved it on your own you already would have. Yeah. Right. Like, can we all just agree on that? Yeah. Because everyone's been struggling with it for so long and they do it, they try, you know, you've already tried. So to me, it's like, if you want to, if you want the cheat code, man, get connected to somebody that like somebody like Gene, you know, get connected to, to Gene who has a program or get connected to whatever Shasta Blue Sky or you right. know, go find a therapist that can actually help you to understand how you got here, right. understand what you need to do to heal 
and and put your put your money where your mouth is. You know, if you say this is man, this is the last time that I want to do this. Well, it's going to cost you. You know, it's it's going to cost you time, effort, and energy, but probably some money. But it's going to save your life, and that's the truth. Is again, I I do think that um, it's addiction is such a complicated thing. Uh, it's not complicated to understand, but it really is complicated to unravel it because of uh, how it's just it's so. It's the way that you think. It's your, it's your behaviors. It's your habits. It's, you know, interwoven throughout your whole life. And so it's such a complex thing that I really do think, you know, if you've been struggling with an addiction for a long time, you got to quit playing games and get really serious and, and, and go all in and say, man, this is the last year that, that I, you know, consume. This is the last year and, and actually go all in. Um, yeah, because yeah. I, you know, I'm I'm never like, yeah, I don't often say that on the podcast, but I really do feel like it's true. Uh, too many guys are, are are trying to they're trying to still solve it on their own, and that's it's one thing if if uh, if you don't have a full blown addiction, but if you do, you just got to get you know you got to actually take action and really work hard with someone who knows how to help you. Um, Gene, do you have some resources that that for that? Yes, I mean we we could have people come to the website. I can send them, uh, I can send them uh, worksheets. Uh, I can send them articles that I've written. If they want to attend a workshop or a conference or a retreat, or they want to do one-on-one counseling online, we do that as well. So all that is at authenticrelationshipsint.com, and they can just do that, or they can call me. Or you don't have, I don't have any problem. You put out my phone number, um, so we can help in any way, shape, or form. Plus. You know, we can actually help you find local resources. And, you know, the key in this is people finding a place that they can plug in and get community, you know, like you're doing here, Jason. You're you're putting a lifeline out there, and it's such an important thing to do. You're making it right, good for and safe for guys to actually think about this and to actually, what is that next step? Find somebody that you can talk to. Find that safe place to open up your heart. And let someone come alongside you. Don't do this alone. We're never meant to do it alone. Um, yeah, it's incredible. Your story is such a story of tragedy and hope. And i i love I love so much that that you're courageous enough to share. You know, you're just get, you just gave all of us a gift, and and that really is your story. And what a hard thing to do because um, there's so much darkness in it. Uh, but there's so much light in life. And so I just yeah. want to challenge you, men, you know, take that, take the life that Gene has just imparted to you, like that man imparted to him and, and do something with that. Do something with, with the hope that you feel today. If you're struggling and you, and you're starting to feel like, okay, if he can get well, you know, so far gone, made so many mistakes, uh, so much trauma in his life. If he can actually get well and whole, right. so can I. And use that momentum and motivation to take your next step. Uh, Gene, thank you so much for coming on today, man. You're such a gift. I really, really appreciate you. It's been my pleasure. Um, Thank you for the opportunity to have a conversation about this. And any other time you want to, we can take it up any further and talk a little deeper if you want. But thank you for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Gene. All right, Brave Come In. That's this week's podcast. Uh, listen, if it blessed you, would you share the podcast? 
uh, like, also subscribe, and leave a comment if you want. Um, that All that stuff really helps us to grow. Otherwise, I will see you next week. Stay brave, man. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the Brave Co. Podcast. If you like this podcast, would you please rate it, review it, leave us a great comment. And if you like this episode in particular, share it with your friends and family. That helps us to spread the word. Guys, stay brave. We'll see you next week.